Well, I once heard someone make the observation that uh, the happiest marriages are the ones where both people know that they married up. Where each one, both the husband and the wife, feel a little bit like they got away with something. I certainly know I did. The longer I've been married to Laura, the more I'm certain I married up and I got away with something. And the best part is she can't go anywhere. She's covenantally bound to me. One of my favorite things to say to her, perhaps, during one of my quirky episodes is to say, well, you promised. You promised. But it's true. Knowing that your life is all of grace, that everything you have, be it marriage or vocation or the very breath in your lungs, knowing that it's more than you deserve, that it's a gift from the Father of lights, is the primary ingredient in the healthy soul. Well, if the happiest spouses are those who know that they married up in a similar but infinitely higher way, it is the happiest and the healthiest Christians who understand that the gospel is the story of how they, or better said, of how we married up in a sense. The gospel is the good news That we have become covenantally bound to someone who is so much more glorious, so much higher, so much more beautiful than we are. Yet nothing can separate us from that. Now, the imagery there may sound a little bit strange at first, especially for men. But you remember where the story is headed, right? You remember what the, the telos, the trajectory of all things is. Well, the heavenly host sure understands. We get a glimpse of it into Revelation 19, and this is the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 6, it says, this is John, who had the revelation, says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! Literally, praise Yahweh! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Why were they saying this? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So I hope you caught that. We are part of the bride of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And what is even more amazing is with all of our quirks and sins and frailties, when his work is complete, it will be a fitting match. When we meet the Lord Jesus, the glorious one, the holy one, the king of glory at the marriage supper, it won't look ridiculous. It says the angels said they were ready. They were made ready to be married to Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And this is where our unbiblical, individualistic approach to Christianity can sometimes put up a stumbling block, again, especially for men, because if I, as a man, am told that I primarily should think of Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, me and Jesus in my quiet time, that's Christianity, and then I read in Scripture that I'm the bride of Christ, 
well, I don't know what to do with that because I don't look good in a dress or a veil. And uh, that's not a vision of glory for me. That's a disturbing vision. Yet the language of us being the bride of Christ is unavoidable. And the story is headed to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It just is. And here is why it is glorious and not weird, men. It's because you are not the bride of Christ individually. On the final day, not one person, singular, will walk down an aisle. Rather, we together are the bride. We together are the covenant people, the bride of Christ, the one people for whom he laid down his life. And I begin this way as we continue on in our series on covenantal, or excuse me, covenant renewal worship, which is the paradigm that we use for our liturgy. In the series on why we do worship the way we do, I'm wanting to stir our collective imagination from Scripture as to what's actually happening in the service. I'm wanting us to wake up more to a, a biblical and a beautiful vision of the richness of the Lord's Day service and the privilege it is to worship. And that all flows out of understanding what the gospel is. It's it's. Yes, it includes forgiveness of sin, but it's so much more as wonderful as that is. And it's not just meaningful work now that will last forever, which is part of that, as wonderful as that is. It's not the entirety. But the good news is that we as the church collective throughout all of history have married up. And the sovereign Christ came to redeem us. Faithless, fretful, sinful, silly, forgetful us at the price of his very life, tortured on a Roman cross to get us back. And he didn't just do it, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. That's the gospel. Now, the joy that was set before him wasn't because we were such a good catch initially. Like, we had such good chemistry. And he's like, yeah, they're already so good, I just got to go get them. That's not the case at all. In fact, the Lord says so in no uncertain terms. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 through 29, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, Paul. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No, we were not chosen to be Christ's bride because Christ thought we would have such a natural chemistry. Rather, the Lord chose us to be in Christ Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. So that when his work in us is complete, when the finishing touches of our sanctification is done, and he steps back and he reveals the glorious thing that he accomplished in us, it'll be crystal clear to everyone that it was all him. And then we will all just worship him forever because of what he accomplished. So yes, we together 
Are the bride of Jesus Christ still very much in process? But we are. And this gospel reality helps us better understand the idea of the Lord's Day service as covenant renewal. Because on Sundays, we aren't just coming to church, as we've said. But we are coming as the bride of Christ to rehearse Revelation 19. And this biblical picture is especially fitting for the element in our liturgy that we will look at for the next two weeks. Namely, the element of consecration. Because it is during this time that the Lord declares again his covenant vows to us. And we hear them and we're moved by that. And then we respond by declaring our praise and our covenant faithfulness to him again through the Spirit. So quickly, by way of review, the paradigm of covenant renewal service follows what we've called the the five C's. So these are the, the big elements in the liturgy. There's the call, and then there's confession and cleansing, and then consecration, communion, and commissioning. And if you'll recall from last week, the the first and the last are sort of brackets that start and end the service. And then the middle three, so the confession and then consecration and then communion, parallel the sacrifices that God instituted for worship in Israel. So namely, the, the sin or guilt offering connects with the confession of sin. The ascension or burnt offering connects with consecration. And the peace offering parallels communion. So we looked more deeply into that last week as to why those sacrificial categories are still helpful and appropriate, though of course now fulfilled in Christ. And as I just said, we'll we'll camp out in consecration for the next two weeks. So my plan next week is to focus more on the practical, what specifically are we doing and why are we doing that? That'll be more next week like the scripture readings and the sermon and the singing and reciting the creed, that's all part of the consecration on purpose. But today I want to explain how the consecration element fits into the overall flow of where we are thus far in the service, and then I want to show you how it connects to the ascension offering in the Old Testament. And then we'll end by looking at a case study of the reformation of worship that King Hezekiah instituted in his day. So today is more of a 30,000 foot view, and then next week we'll, we'll land the plane on some practicalities of it. So quick review to get us into the flow of where we're at today, because remember, there, there's an inner logic to our liturgy. Each week we are rehearsing the gospel. There is a narrative arc to what we're doing. We begin with God calling us to himself. We didn't choose God. God chose us, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you, Ephesians 1, 4. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God is the one who calls us to himself in salvation, and God is the one who calls us to himself in the service, in worship. And then comes confession and cleansing, so having temporarily stepped out of the world and into the throne room, we're reminded of our sin that we carry in. And so we humbly confess our sins together, but this does not lead to sorrowful introspection because of 1 John 1, 7. If if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son will cleanse us from every sin. 
Or 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so that was last week. And from there, we now move forward in the service, now fully in fellowship with our God and each other, fully confirmed afresh in our union with Christ. And then it's from there that we enter in to the consecration portion. And the assurance of pardon that we receive after the confession, the cleansing that we just received, is what propels us into the consecration. Because consecration means, literally means, to make holy together. So consecration comes from, from two words, con, with, and secrete, or sacred, holy. To make holy with. And it's this time of our service when God deals with us as his holy people. And then we respond with reaffirming that God is our God and rededicating ourselves to be holy unto him. That is to say, Christ did not just make us holy in the abstract. So now you're holy over there. Christ made us holy for himself now. I made you holy, and now you are mine. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, we see this. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So in the consecration time, the Lord does that. So he declares that we are his holy people, and then he works that out a little bit more. He makes us actually more holy during that time. And then we respond in like manner. We, we proclaim that, yes, God is holy, but not just that. He's, he's holy to us. We consecrate ourselves to the Lord. We declare that we are his people and he is our God. We reenact, as it were, Joshua 24, 15. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. So that's what we're doing this time. We're saying again, as for Pilgrim Hill and a land teeming with idols, we will serve the Lord. Because the Lord is not just holy out there. He's holy unto us. We are consecrated. We're not desecrated. We're not a holy thing that has been tarnished. We are consecrated. We are holy to him. But we don't just declare that this is true. We then worship God because it's true, for he is worthy of it. And so we proclaim our praises upwards to him. Psalm 81, 1, sing aloud to the God of our strength and shout for joy to the God of Jacob. And so we, we declare and we shout and we lift up our praises to the Lord. And this is where the, the consecration element evokes the picture 
of the ascension offering in Israel's worship. Now, almost all of your translations are going to translate that as burnt offering because it was the moment in the service when, you guessed it, they burnt the offering or, or the sacrifice. But that's actually a very unfortunate translation because the significance of the sacrifice is not that it was burnt, but it was that in the burning, its aroma was released upwards. Its essence was released upwards. It was ascending now up to God. Heaven or earth going up to heaven. That was the great thing. That's what matters. In fact, the Hebrew word that is translated burnt or whole burnt offering is ola, which literally means to ascend. So you've heard of the Psalms of Ascent. That's the Psalms of Ola. Even the word staircase is from the word Ola. So that is literally what that word means. So whenever you see the word burnt offering, I want you to autocorrect it in your mind as ascension offering because that helps our collective imagination understand the great thing about, about that moment. And, and that's where the imagery connects with our worship. Because in our worship, in the consecration, we are offering ourselves and our praises to God in response to his grace. We are saying, yes, we are your people and you are our God and we give you all that we have, a sacrifice of praise in response to it. And then this ascends, this really happens. This ascends into the throne room of God and he loves the way it smells. Revelation 8, 4. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the right hand of the angel. And that's an amazing thought. That's a reason to sing. And that's what this element and really this reformation in worship that we are in the midst of at Pilgrim Hill is all about. It's not just about doing something different. It's not just about trying something new or better said, trying something old. The entire point is to self-consciously recover a vision of the holiness and the grandeur and the royal majesty of God in our collective imagination so that we approach him in a way that is befitting the king. And this time of self-conscious consecration, of being consecrated by the Lord and consecrating ourselves to the Lord is so important because we live in a land full of idols. We live in blasphemous and profane times. And the church has been so thoroughly influenced by the worldliness all around her. And so we are in need of reformation, of approaching God and worship on his terms not approaching in a casual or cavalier or consumeristic way primarily, but rather of understanding that we are in the throne room of the holy God, and we are called to worship him in the beauty of holiness, as the psalmist said. And then this doesn't just impact how we worship on Sunday. Rather, what happens here during the service and during the consecration time impacts the next six days of the week because we are a holy people we are a people consecrated by the lord tasked with bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth in real time and we when we go out from here as a holy army on purpose it changes the way that we do everything 
And that's what puts the darkness around us to flight more and more. The holy army of Jesus Christ, knowing what she is about. That's what will turn the tide in this city. That's what will bring heaven to earth more and more. And that's the last thing the enemy wants. People who have heard the Lord say through the apostle Peter that you are a holy nation. And now you are called to be holy for I am holy. So worship really is our warfare. And what happens in the service is we're consecrated to God then goes and reverberates throughout the rest of our week in our families, in our school, in our town, in how we conduct all of our affairs. Consecration matters. The sacrifice of praise, the, the Christian ascension offering matters. God responds to it, and he uses it to sanctify us in powerful and redemptive ways. And as I said, next week we'll look more into the details of what we are actually doing during, during this portion. But I want to close today by reading a sort of case study, as I said, from King Hezekiah. And this was an important moment in Israel's history where things had gone off the rails. And King Hezekiah said, it's time to reform the way that we worship. And so this is from 2 Chronicles 29. I'm going to read a big chunk of that. So if you would open up to 2 Chronicles 29, that would be helpful because I want you to see this. And I'll read it primarily with, with little comments. But I want you to notice especially the connection between the people consecrating themselves before the Lord and the role of the ascension offering in this. So remember when you see burnt offering, that means ascension offering. Second Chronicles chapter 29, and I will start reading in verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. That's Hezekiah. He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and have turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and they have not burned incense or offered ascension offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you have seen with your own eyes. Verse 9. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this, now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and to make offerings to him. Then the Levites arose. Now skipping down to verse 15. They gathered their brothers and 
consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days, they consecrated the house of the Lord. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Then they went in to Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of ascension offering, and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread, and all its utensils, all the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated. And behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Then King Hezekiah rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls and seven rams and seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the son of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. Then they slaughtered the rams and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all of Israel. For the king commanded that the ascension offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. Now, verse 25. I love this part. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king seer and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the ascension offering be offered on the altar. And when the ascension offering began, the song to the Lord began also, and the trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. And the whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the ascension offering was finished. And when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah, the king, and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. So come near, bring sacrifices, and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought ascension offerings. And this is the word of the Lord. And now, of course, we don't bring the blood of bulls and goats. Because all of this was looking forward to the final blood sacrifice that would finish all of that mess. 
And that's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The final sacrifice where the aroma of that sacrifice went up to God and he was pleased and the sins of his bride were completely propitiated. And so we now draw near, not with terror or fear, but with joy and reverence and gladness for the great salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. We offer up our Christian ascension offering of praise. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we again are so humbled that the King of glory would bid us come near to you. And so, Father, I I pray that through your Spirit, you would give us eyes again to see the beauty of Christ, the glory of what he has accomplished, and that you would continue to cultivate in us hearts of wonder that are eager to worship our God that are eager to declare in the sanctuary the goodness of our Lord. And Father, I pray as our worship turns into a groundswell, that it would break forth out of this sanctuary and it would pour out down into Goodlettsville and beyond. And that you would be sanctifying us more and more and that you would be sanctifying this city, that those who are far from you because of what you're doing here would come rushing into the kingdom that King Jesus would receive all the glory that is due his name in our time. And now we would pray the way our Lord taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.